Welcome to Drop Everything, podcast number 119. I'm your host, Dan Holzman. On this podcast, our special guest is juggler and comedic performer, Curtis Carlisle. Before we talk to Curtis, let's thank our sponsor, the IJA, International Jugglers Association. Information about this great group of jugglers can be found at juggle.org. If you interest in sponsoring a future podcast or being a guest, please contact me at danjuggle at gmail.com. Now drop everything. Get ready for Curtis Carlisle. Welcome to Drop Everything Podcast number 119. My very special guest, Mr. Kurt Carlisle. Hello, Kurt. Hey, Dan Holtzman. Now for this next hour, we're dedicated to all things Kurt. So let's start with Kurt's childhood. Where were you born and what did your parents do? So my mother was a horseback rider from Redmond, Oregon, and my father was in the Coast Guard. They met at a Coast Guard sock hop dance in like the 79 or 78, and then they hit the road uh, and moved across the country to Rhode Island, where my father was a lighthouse keeper for the Coast Guard, and then I was born. So you were born in a lighthouse. Sounds kind of like a country western song a little bit. I think I was born in the hospital down the road from a oh, lighthouse. Okay. That's a better line, though. <laughs> exactly. Born in a hospital down the road from a lighthouse. And what was it like living in a lighthouse? Was it as romantic and, and uh, mysterious as I'm picturing? Uh, my parents tell me a few stories. Uh, people thought it was a tourist attraction, so they would always lock the doors. But if they forgot to lock the doors, someone would just be in the kitchen looking around, like taking photos, like, oh, look at this lighthouse. And my family was like, oh, we actually live here. Can you lock the door on your way out? And how long did you live in the lighthouse? Was that your most of your childhood, or did you move a lot uh, with your dad being in the Coast Guard? Yeah, when your parents are in the Coast Guard, you're essentially a military brat for the Department of Transportation. So every three years, we would move around. I got to be in St. Louis for three years, Minnesota for three years, Oregon, Washington, South Carolina, North Carolina, a bunch of very strange places with people with accents. So you got to be the new kid a lot. That definitely happened a lot. And I also learned to hang out with adults instead of kids because kids were super judgy. But adults would like give you some funny stories or teach you how to whistle with your fingers or like how to I don't know, spin a quarter. Now, did you develop any kind of uh, defense mechanisms? Because you, you, you're always very funny. Did you de then develop your wit to kind of help you with the locals as you went to new places? I think that I developed the, my ability to talk to old people or talk to principals and things like that was my defense. And then I just studied comedy for like 10 years as a kid. When, what was that, Comedy Central first came out, I would spend summers with my grandparents and it was too hot, so I would watch Comedy Central. And I would literally take notes for no reason as like a 12-year-old. Like, this is something I like. Stephen Wright, he's interesting. Here's some things that he said that are funny. You know, I never knew that I'd be a comedian later. And sometimes I would use those jokes. Like, sometimes I'd watch The Tonight Show or something like that as like a 10-year-old. And I suppose I would try to use some of those jokes at school or hmm. like at the Boy Scouts. I was definitely very social as a kid. So Boy Scouts, church groups, small town sports all the time. That was my defense mechanism, just get involved. <laughs> so I, once you show your value in a small town, people are like, all right, we can quit making fun of this redheaded ginger, like skinny, pale kid. And were you good at sports? Did you have natural coordination? No, I was pretty bad at most sports because they were never explained to me because my dad was always out working on a boat or running around doing other crazy things. He wasn't really into sports and neither was my mother. My mom was into horses, and anything that you wanted to know about farming or horses, she could, like, tell you. And I got to ride horses. I got to compete in horseback riding. I got to, like, uh, yeah, win a bunch of medals and saddles and things like that when I was a child. Yeah, because she was a champion horsewoman, so she competed at rodeos? Yeah, with county fairs, rodeos for the 4-H, I believe. Uh, yeah, down in Newport, Oregon, Redmond, Oregon. All kinds of places where real cowboys were at. My namesake is actually her great-grandfather, I think, whose name was Curtis, who raised bucking broncos in Oregon, like back in the turn of the century. 
Now, besides Stephen Wright, who were some of your favorite comedians as a kid? I think the ones you're most exposed to, like Rodney Dangerfield or Robin Williams. <laughs> Other comedians that I really liked. Man, that's a great question. So many of them. Like personally, after I took on juggling, I started checking out juggling comedians. And those guys that I was really paying attention to were Reese Thomas, Charlie Brown, David Lichtenstein, like Team Rootberry, or like Brothers Different Mothers, those kind of people. And what was your first exposure to juggling when you were a kid? No, no. I mean, I suppose as a kid, a few times I was in a gymnasium and a gym teacher tried to explain juggling to a bunch of kids. And they would do it with scarves, and they would try to explain to you just to do the shower. They're like, do a shower with scarves, and you're just kind of just flailing. And then they'd bring out the juggling balls, and no one would get it, and they'd put them away. And then you'd never get a chance to try that again. And it was always a mystery to me. <laughs> now you mean the, you mean the cascade or the shower? Because I think a shower with scarves would be harder than a cascade. No, yeah, they would just try try to teach you the shower instead oh. of trying to teach you a cascade. That's why I'm saying they would yeah. make it really difficult. They weren't really learned about juggling and they kind of put the experience of juggling off for me like a bunch of years so i did tons of other things like rock climbing and bicycling and rollerblading and diving and swimming and all kinds of fun sports and then when i was in my early 20s i saw a unicycle and i was like hey man this is something i'm gonna do i'm enthusiastic about this and a friend of mine was like that is the dumbest thing i've ever seen <laughs> like why would you do that that's too difficult. It's never going to work. And I was like, finally, a challenge. And so I picked up a unicycle. It led me to like serious juggling because I had met a clown who unicycled across the country and he had books on unicycling. His name was Tater Appeal. As clowns' names ought, ought to be, Tater Appeal. Yeah. Tater Appeal, yeah. And he introduced me to serious juggling and I went there and I bought my first props. They introduced me to Portland jugglers, and I just happened to be in like one of the most fertile places for juggling at one of the most fertile times like of all time. Yeah, so for people who don't know, by serious juggling, you mean the, the, the juggling manufacturer, the juggling the sellers of props. Yeah, so it was a juggling prop store called Serious Juggling, run by Ben Schoenberg and Yvette. I think Schoenberg as well. I don't know her last name. But you would just walk in there, and there's a full set of every juggling thing you could want. You know, seven juggling balls eight rings, five clubs, and it was all set up really nicely in the beginning. Along the way of knowing them for like 10 years, it kind of fell into disarray and it was wild. <laughs> like they, they sold too many things, didn't have enough employees, whatever it was, but it was a huge mecca. You know, like I know that I met, I think, like Francoise Rocher and like... Uh, just like really amazing jugglers in that store, like Jason Garfield and different people, just because it was before the juggling festival, the place to go was to go to the serious juggling store. And how old were you when you went to, uh, when you got to Portland? Uh, 21. All right. So that's when the, the whole juggling bug started. So the unicycle yeah. was kind of your gateway drug? Uh, for sure. And then it was Diabolo because like, you know, I can't be orthodox. Is it Diabolo or Diablo? You know, I think it's, either one if you're italian they'd probably be like diabolo but like it's diabolo it's that's why i call it super yo-yo so i don't try to be culturally appropriative <laughs> like, I see. Know, it's easier to say as well it's big now you talked about some pretty important uh, jugglers mm -hmm. uh, unfortunately we've had none of those on the podcast so oh, far dang. so we're gonna have to reach out to uh I've uh, talked to Reese Thomas about doing it, and nice. I haven't talked to Charlie Brown in a long time okay, or, or okay. David Lichtenstein. Mm -hmm. But those guys are really uh, they're really stalwarts in that scene. For sure. You must have learned a lot from them. Yeah, I learned to go out and find your own work, find a lane, and to work it. You know, like Reese Thomas did a million school shows and library shows, and it was great to watch him do those things. And then also he'd get rewarded. He'd get invited to like egypt to do the school show that he's normally doing in oregon for like 300 dates in oregon but now all of a sudden he's in egypt and the quality of the show is so high that it's like crushing it in egypt you know and same thing with david like anytime that they need a cowboy clown around the world they look for him and then anytime he has some downtime he just goes and does a clowns without borders thing goes to africa or haiti i mean yeah they're very influential not to mention just weekly juggling with them they're just doing constantly doing crazy things. They're like a bunch of kids.
Well, let's talk about your evolution from a guy who gets a unicycle. Mm -hmm. At that point, what do you think your profession was going to be? At that time, I was an EMT. Yeah, I was an EMT, emergency medical technician. I was working on being a firefighter. Okay. And so I was taking the test to be a firefighter. I'd gotten a job with the state of Oregon or like the city of Portland, but it was 18 months out. I just started juggling just a little bit. And then, yeah, the first year was like, wow, learn all these crazy things. The guy who said that that was a silly idea, his name was Mike. Him and I just started practicing together every day just because it was fun. It was interesting. It was challenging. If we went camping, we would juggle. If we like met some people, we would try to teach them to juggle. They weren't interested, so we'd go back to practicing. We eventually learned to pass from the Portland jugglers, just going to the meetings, seeing people like Pat McGuire every week. You're like, who is that person and why are they juggling so like that? Like, what is that? Then to find out they're a championship, like International Jugglers Association juggler, you're like, wait, so there's an association? Hmm. So for like, yeah, 18 months, it was nothing but juggling and getting excited about juggling, picking up every book from Serious Juggling, whether it's like Donald Grant's Diablo book or some old Cascada magazine that was from like the 90s. I was just getting excited about juggling for the first two years trying to learn as much as i could and then eventually i think juggling db is that a website juggling database came out yeah juggling database yeah and you know i had been doing all these things i had gone to like a bunch of juggling festivals i'd gone to the humble juggling festival and we had done a renegade act my friend mike and i we've decided to form a little team called the vanilla town vaudevillians mm-hmm we did a renegade act and it was just to be silly and to like, you know, tear our shirts off and whatever. At the end, people were clapping and excited. They're like, that wasn't bad. You could have left your shirts on. You're really talented. <laughs> <laughs> and you're like, oh, that's a great compliment. You're saying we need to do more sit-ups or like, no, no, no. You know, like if you want to be in the public show and there's going to be like kids and families, you could do the whole act, keep your your stuff on. You know, and that was like the first time I'd met Kevin Axtell. When you see like some really great performers on stage just doing crazy things. And I remember that Humble Juggling Festival is one of my first places. And Reese Thomas did like a 40 minute set. And then I was like, okay, so wait, you could just do like some interesting things, tell some jokes, do some more interesting things, tell some jokes, get a volunteer to help you do a really hard thing. That, that's a living, that's a thing. <laughs> and so. By the time I had gotten done with Humble Juggling Festival and a few other things, we were just looking for ways to do the small street festivals or the places that we, we belonged at that time, which was kind of like retirement homes or preschools, just anything you can do to like get cut your teeth. Yeah, so for people interested in starting out, uh, one of your suggestions is, you know, start where you're at, right? Oh, man, if you're in a college, find a club. If you're in a church, use that platform. You know, I know plenty of people who use their platform that they're on to get better at their thing and then eventually be, like, super great at it. I mean, this is like dropping a weird magician name, but Brian Brushwood. You ever see that guy? He's a successful magician, successful, done a lot of things in TV. But when he was in college, he just did nothing but amazing magic shows, tried his best for his college. And I know also you're a big proponent of uh, learning from the library. Oh, man, of course. I've done 600 to 800 library shows because you just go and you can do a real simple show. You can inspire and you can say, hey, I legitimately learned right before the Internet had good videos. Everything I learned from was a book or like an image or text and all these things or a VHS tape. And those things are all accessible right here at your library. And even if you want to watch videos on YouTube, they have that too. It's such a free resource. I mean, I took my, I have a child, she's 17 now. And when they were gr growing up, I did nothing but take them to library shows like clowns and puppetry, people reading books and making community. They'd be doing some art projects. We were at one where uh, Charlie Brown and Zephyr Brown were teaching juggling at a library. So they put up a dome. It's just like the library is a great resource if you want to get interested in performing, doing your taxes, you know, looking at old style, looking at old, you know, interesting sources for your material instead of being the same as everyone else. Oh, man. And let's talk about the benefits of uh, starting in a team. Of course. Do you think that helped to kind of 
break the break you into it so you weren't alone? What are some of the benefits and what are some of the drawbacks? I think the benefits are having more energy to load the truck, having more okay. energy to get the gigs, having more energy to like network and communicate and then also having someone to be beholden to. You know, like you're like, hey man, we're doing that gig. Okay, are we gonna practice? I think we need to practice, yeah. And it, you know, it's just like any good relationship. Having a workout partner would be great, and that's what you know my juggling relationship was most like—a workout partner. We both wanted to get better at this thing. Both wanted to. We're both excited about it. Wanted to be great at it. Eventually, we got great at it, and I think my partner was like, "Hey, actually, I'm spending way too much time with this guy that I like didn't even know before I started juggling, and I really wasn't that much into performing, and now we're like." at the new victory theater and it's giving me anxiety mm. and he's like we need to talk about this kurt and we did and then you know eventually we split up but i think having a partnership in the beginning it's so powerful i mean i literally learned to juggle nine clubs by using volva gauchenko as a juggling robot <laughs> yeah a good juggling robot that yeah chat uh, chat gt is not gonna take over the volva gauchenkos of the world no way. I mean, I could walk over there and he could hold like five of the clubs, do all of them while I'm throwing him just trash constantly. And then he berates me and tells me like, hey, do it better. But yeah. And how long did the journey take? So let's talk about the so because New Victory Theater is, is a Broadway type of uh, venue. Yeah, I think five years of solid practice. Five years. Well, so what was the journey? Like, What was the first the first show? The journey was Portland Juggling Festival, watching that, being inspired. Yeah. Humboldt Juggling Festival, doing that, kind of being like, oh, we're not such a laughing stock. We could actually do something besides a Renegade show. Cool. Went back to Portland. We did a Renegade show. They asked us, hey, would you like to do a benefit show? We did a Clowns Without Borders benefit show at a small theater called the Echo Theater. Afterwards, the director was like, hey, would you like to be in a paid show? It pays a very small amount, and you're doing a small part. Could you handle that? And we're like, yeah, of course. We took it really seriously. We worked really hard on it. She said we had like three minutes. So we made like a really tight three minute thing and we showed up. She was like, whoa, this is really crazy. We're going to write music for it. We're going to like put it as a featured part of the show. What other things you have to offer? We're like, we can pass clubs. We can pass rings. We can both unicycle. How would you like to use us? And this was a theater company called Do Jump. And so this woman, Robin Lane, gave us freedom to learn and grow, do shows. And then eventually it was a gig where we could do 60 dates a year with Do Jump. And we were doing 15 to 20 minutes of the show. Nice. Yeah, I think didn't Pat McGuire also was, wasn't he a member of Do Jump as well? Of course, Pat, Pat McGuire was a member of it. She wrote like six shows. So she had different people for different shows. And I came in at like the end of her career where she had written a few different shows that I was involved in and then she just started writing retrospectives of her career and we were involved in all these retrospectives and these like recreatings of the best of her career stuff mm -hmm. and so yeah that is what kind of got on broadway was like a show about mark chagall with a bunch of the best pieces that she'd created over her whole career nice and so at that point he decides that it sort of just swept him along, and now that yeah. he's in this position, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. the future does not look like you and I, him, are going to stay together. No, he had college to do. His parents wanted him to have a regular job. You know, I was older than him by like just only a few years, but it made a huge difference to his parents. His parents was like, you know, that guy's a loser. This, you know, <laughs> you need to get on your college life. And I was like, oh, bummer. You know, like it was a, it was much more like complicated interpersonal things than that. But it boiled mm -hmm. down to yeah, he wanted responsibilities. He needed a consistent life. I wanted to have an exciting life where there's a bunch of peaks and valleys, and I understand what I'm getting into. But you guys did compete, right? You you took bronze. And, oh yeah, and we competed at, in the IJA. I mean, we got to do great things. Like Juggling DB got us our first gig at Hershey Park in Pennsylvania, and in one summer we got to work out a ball routine, a Diablo routine, and a club passing routine in front of a live audience, and we did 675 shows in one summer. Yeah, Hershey Park is another place where a lot of jugglers cut their teeth. Yeah, man. I mean, just anywhere where you can get a place where you can do a bunch of gigs, it doesn't happen very much anymore. So like Disney World or like, it, yeah, anywhere you can get some gigs to actually get a place to repeat shows, man, that's a powerful thing. 
Yeah, amusement parks, they don't pay well. No. But boy, uh, one of my first jobs was a Magic Mountain. And it was eight sets a day. Okay. Half an hour on, half an hour off. Yeah. For $80 a day. Wild. But you understand what works real quick and what doesn't work real quick. Yeah, I understood that the costume my mother made for me didn't work pretty quick. <laughs> yeah, there you go. You know, and and that's exactly the lessons you get are priceless compared to like what you'd have to pay in. You know, yeah. If you didn't go out there, you could just say that I'm the best, and this is the best costume. People just don't get me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I just saw recently a, an ad in the on the internet for like a show host at uh, Six Flags. So you kind of entertain people as they go to the show, mm. but you're also responsible for sort of the janitorial part of it as well so <laughs> that's exciting very exciting if you're looking for an entry-level position i think something like that is uh yeah is very gettable that's funny you know? yeah like the show that we did at hershey park we were literally working for waste management waste management mm-hmm. had a tax write-off they're talking about how to recycle through it yeah. through a juggling and, and stomp style show you know, was it so, called like the Green Machine or something like that? Something like that. Yeah, yeah. Trash Time, Green Machine, all these mm-hmm. things. And so, I told Vova Galchenko that I was a trash man <laughs> <laughs> because I did two summers of that, and he believed me for years. He's like, "Of course, you're cr- crummy at juggling. Why? Why <laughs> wouldn't you be a trash man? You're not as good as like you know this one over here." <laughs> Well, let's, let's talk about that because, you know, you could be great at juggling, mm-hmm. but not great at performing. What do you think is sort of the difference between a great juggler and then a great performer of juggling? Oh, man. A great juggler isn't always a great ambassador for juggling, right? Mm-hmm. A great performer is a great ambassador of juggling. There's someone that's showing off juggling and making everyone in the audience want to pay attention understand what they're doing and then want to apply that feeling to their own life that's well put when i watch tom wall juggler tell an anecdote he's pulling people into the world of juggling he's explaining to people why it's valid that he's doing it and then at the end you get to watch a well thought out trick wow this is the best TED talk I've ever been to, <laughs> you know, and that's what really good juggling should be, whether it's like the passing zone, just being so nice and present, but also having those big tricks in their pocket. That's why they can be so humble. Same thing with, you know, I always thought Aaron Gregg was the best, holds all these world records in chainsaw juggling, funniest juggler on the pitch up in Canada. That guy would write a joke for every single thing in his show. And he, that's what he taught me. He said, write a joke for every part of your show. And then it makes you think of every part of your show. And that's really what a real juggler is of me. Someone that thinks about all parts of their show. Yeah, another kind of unsung juggler, Aaron Gregg. Uh, very good. He's gone on to other things. But uh, he sort of made that transition from juggler to non-juggler to, you know, working guy. Uh, but now you made a transition from, from team into solo. So was that hard for you? Or did you feel liberated? in that moment i kind of felt like i was being oh no this is i have nothing to give and then i did my first few shows and people were very receptive and i was like okay actually i'm doing it i'm out there i'm having a good time i then started when i was a solo juggler i started solo going to juggling festivals and then offering to MC the shows or MC renegade shows st louis juggling festival or Demento Juggling Festival, different things. I just put myself out there and got excited once I wasn't beholden to anyone else. I was like, man, I'm out there learning. I'm just doing all these crazy things. I want to be really good someday. I know I'm bad right now. (laughs) You know, all these people are amazing and they want to be my friends. So, hey, I'm going to go to IJ festivals. I'm going to go to juggling festivals. I'm going to go to the Moisture Festival. When I get an invitation to hang out and I go to an Avner, the eccentric workshop, I'm going to go do that. Portland is very inspirational. I'm telling you, the time that I became a juggler in 2001 till 2010 was my formative years. Those juggling festivals on the West Coast were insane. Yeah, and there was a lot of them. I mean, there's a lot less now, but we had like around us, there was Isla Vista, mm-hmm. there was Demento. Mm-hmm. Obviously, the Portland Juggling Festival is still going strong. Of course. Yeah, they had to move venues because Reed College the uh, gymnasium that they had been using for 30 some years or 25 years, it collapsed in a snowstorm during the COVID crisis. Yeah, that was a nice space though. And of course, the Reed College juggling group is still meets. 
uh, we meet at different places all over the city now. It's kind of fractaled out. But mm, there's still, okay. I would still say there's 100 people juggling. There's a Tuesday night at this place called Jaja PDX, creating some circus works there and doing shows there sometimes. And then also on Tuesday nights, it's open for anyone that wants to juggle from 6 to 10. And what's your practice schedule like? When Back in the when you were really into it and developing, mm-hmm. like how, would you have an hourly amount you try to put every day or what what kind of a schedule did you follow like isn't it bobby may or whatever that just said like just always have your props one of those guys but that's all i did was just always have stuff always be doing something uh when i first started juggling it was me and my friend mike mesa and we were doing vanilla town and we were kind of just trying to outdo each other oh you can do four balls i can do five balls oh you can do five balls i'm working on six balls oh you can do that i'm yo-yoing oh now you're yo-yoing i'm doing a spin (laughs) spin top okay cigar boxes and so going through all these developmental stages and just being excited about all of it being young and being healthy i mean i tell this joke in my show i say uh i learned to juggle in my early 20s as a way to harness all the wrist and forearm strength i developed as a teenager okay on swim team (laughs) okay and so like it's the truth though i used to swim for four to six hours a day or even longer if i was lifeguarding and swimming and so i needed something to do once i got out of the pool right and i picked up juggling and so yeah i would probably juggle four to six hours a day well i think also doing something like swimming where you're realizing you're doing this sort of repetitive thing Mm -hmm. And you're able to do it for this number of hours Mm -hmm. that why can't I do something when someone's not coaching me or or prodding me to do it on my own? Mm -hmm. It teaches you that discipline. Yeah. And also passing feels like swimming if done correctly. Interesting. Because of what, the rhythm of it? Or or how how do you mean that? Because of the rhythm of it, because it becomes like when you're swimming correctly, it feels like everything's happening automatically, but you can make fine-tuned adjustments. Okay. And when you're passing with someone great, it feels like everything's happening automatically, but you can easily make adjustments. And those adjustments in passing are just tricks or stunts or whatever you're going to try to do in passing. But it's the same. It's a feeling. And you talked about going to workshops. So as you develop your show, did you have any kind of pointers you can give people about sort of the show development? Is it listening to the audience? What are some of the best ways to improve your performance as you as you develop? I mean, I think the only reason you're doing a show is because there is an audience. So number one, acknowledging that you're there together. If only one person shows up, tell them that they're the best audience that you've ever had. And then really believe it because like, they could be the best audience you've ever had. Just a bunch of simple things like that. And then when I've been lucky to get in front of 3,000 people, instead of getting overwhelmed, I'll just look at one person and be like, hey, man, that guy's like the best audience I've ever had. <laughs> okay. It's, you're not in an old folks home anymore. You're now at this theater in Minneapolis in front of like a big band, and you have to hit your tricks or look like a fool. You could get overwhelmed easily. But yeah, developing your tricks, start with the smallest audience you can, your family, yourself. Watch some videotape of yourself. Make a show that you'd want to see, honestly. Like, don't create a show that you've seen. Or don't create Mm -hmm. a show that someone else has done, but honestly create a show that you'd want to see. And I can tell when people have done that, and that's what always, for me, is the most inspiring, interesting, fun to watch. Well, you see that a lot. I mean, there's people who develop a show based on their own originality, like they're the only one of those doing that. Mm -hmm. And that's that's a very powerful place to be. For sure. And if if you were the juggling guy who decided that you wanted to do, like just say I juggle plus anything. You could be that person. No one's taken that lane yet, you know? What do you, what do you mean by I juggle plus anything? You're like, I juggle plus comedy. A lot of people mm. have done this. You're like, I juggle right. plus miming. Okay, now there's less people in there. Like, I juggle plus technology. Now you're winning. You're winning IJA, right? Sure. Now I juggle plus I integrate and network on social media. Okay, now you've made a whole career. You know, you just have to pick your lane with juggling. That's the great thing is it's like so abundant. Performing isn't the only thing you should have to do or worry about. And like, that's an interesting place to be right now. I always thought that the only thing you could do is perform with juggling. And that's the only value you could get out of it. But to me, the most value I've gotten out of it is like learning and being inspired and community well it reminds me of that book that what lessons from the art of juggling mm-hmm. where they combine juggling then with with self-improvement and motivation and how it apply to businesses and they created their own lane or, or juggling for the complete klutz of course started a whole book empire yeah that's that's really i mean yeah i mean if you like something about juggling find a way i think juggling needs more solid 
masters of ceremony, mm-hmm. but there's where does the person like that get to practice? So you need to become the master of ceremony of your own small shows in your own small towns and then work your way up to bigger places. I mean, you, you cut your teeth in Renaissance fairs. There's going to be an audience there always. It might not be financially beneficial every time or it might be a difficult thing to do. But if you really want to show off at your friends, go do two seasons at a Ren fair and then see your show. It'll be more, much more interesting for your friends to watch. I know you emceed at the recent IGA Festival. What are some good qualities of an emcee? What, what should they do to, to help the show? I think that their job is to connect the audience to the acts that we have to present tonight. And that's it. If you want to connect them as a person, if you want to connect the prop, if you want to connect the joke. But the job is to soften the audience up and remind them that they are there to be entertained. And then to soften up the entertainers to let them know that they're being taken care of. We're going to wait until you're ready, and then we're going to get you out there. But also, it's kind of like when I do shows in Portland, I do variety shows or burlesque shows or like uh, Sinferno Cabaret is the thing that I emcee all the time. You kind of want to light a fuse in the beginning, get people really excited, and then get out of the way of the show as an emcee. And what are some mistakes like a performer can do? Like when dealing with the emcees, like I know a lot of them will give you this really long, here, read this. For sure. I think think reading really kills the energy. I think the thing you can do that will make an MC have the best introduction is introduce yourself. Hey, my name is Samantha. I've really been doing this. This is how long I've been doing it. I come from like wherever. You know, talk to the MC for a minute. They don't have to read everything about it, but now they know who Samantha is and they go on stage. And when they say, oh, Samantha Starlight, she's a great person. I was talking to her backstage. Her act, it looks fascinating, friends. I've never seen anything like this. Here we Mm -hmm. go. I try to be factual. I don't always need to have a joke. I just really need the person to understand that this is Samantha Starlight. And she's doing a really amazing new thing that I've never seen before. And then I leave stage. Give it up for Samantha. But a lot of people want you to read a three-page diatribe about them. And it's full of a bunch. It's like the hardest thing to write is a resume. And the even harder thing is an entertainment resume. Because people just say, this cunning, amazing, <laughs> fantastic, jaw-dropping entertainer has been around the world 17 times and done everything you could imagine to even imagine. <laughs> it's like it's the most no content that you could ever get from anyone. It's adjectives. Yeah. If you want to connect with your MC, give them three things about yourself. That's it. Your name, place you were born, and like maybe like what inspired you to make the act. Yeah, so more about conveying a feeling than than just a lot of information. Of course. That's why you want to meet all of the acts. You know, like I've had acts roll up like just before the show and then go to run on stage and I didn't know who they are. And and my honest introduction is like, I have no clue what's about to happen. You guys (laughs) are on the edge of your seat. I'm on the edge of the mic. Let's give it up for this act I've never heard of, baby child poops or whatever. And then I run off the stage, and it could even be better for them to have an air of mystery instead of saying, our next act is juggling poi. They're on fire, so stay back. Our next act is one of the best poi jugglers you've ever seen, so pick up your jaw off the floor. Here comes Fireman. That introduction is like maybe for TV, Right, right. Maybe for like something that a thing that's going to last 30 years, but something that's going to last and no one's going to remember in five minutes. You just say our next act may or may not be on fire. So keep your hands in your pockets unless you're clapping. Please welcome this thing. Right, right. It's a mystery. It's a small little introduction. That's it. But it also keeps the show moving. Like, of course. As soon as it's like, like, okay, it's moving, it's moving. Now here's this long introduction that I have to read. It's not gonna. It's not gonna keep the energy moving. What do the Raspinis say? It's not a showstopper, but it certainly slows things down. Yeah, it's not a showstopper, but it certainly slows it down. Yeah, and that, that, you don't want to do that. You just want everyone. It's a weird thing, man. Like I have to tell people this recently as an MC because people don't know how to run on. Right. More so than anything, if someone introduces you, run on. Yeah. Just run on, because when that person says, "Please give it up for the Kurt Brothers." I'm running out for that energy. I'm, I'm I'm in that energy. And I say, no, 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 stop it. You guys are too great. I haven't even done a trick yet. Calm down, guys. But audiences sure. aren't, they're not even trained that way anymore. It's like, please give it up for Samantha. And then there's no Samantha. The MC yeah. walks off stage. There's a dead stage. 
the audience dies down energy, and then they turn the music on, and then Samantha walks on stage, and then she does a bunch of things and feels awkward, and is like, that audience is a dead fish. It's like, no, Samantha, when I say your name, you run on stage. Like, could you please just give me that? Or be ready on stage behind the MC. Ask me to go stage right, and you take center stage, and when I introduce you, you're there. But it just energetically, people don't know how to keep it going. That's a good point. I'm, I'm working with a performer now uh, uh, as a mentor. And it's this idea of like when people are applauding, like when you finish a trick, you can use that energy to kind of segue into your next bit. Like you don't want the energy to flag in between routines. No way. And like I say, and he's talking about, you know, making an entrance. Like I'm going to come out. I'm going to kind of look around. I'm going to maybe do a silly trick and then, okay, I got time for something, you know, just kind of like, Start in a hole. No. Don't start in a hole. No. Come out come out with energy. Come out and keep that energy going from that good introduction and that applause you just got. So yeah, if you're at, like me at a county fair, places like that, I almost always have to start off with like a jazzy juggling set. Okay. Something I'm good at, like some clubs or some rings. Enough that the music's fun and hype and people are going to clap along. Maybe it has like a 4-4 beat in it. But it gets you excited and then you're done. You say, oh my God, thank you. Let me introduce myself. My mm -hmm. I am this guy. <laughs> you know, I'm the guy that just did that thing. Wasn't that crazy? That's wild. I think that guy deserves a break. <laughs> like, you guys keep clapping and let that guy drink some water over here. Yeah, it's okay. hard. It's hard work working out here in the Midway. You know, my name's Kurt. Let me introduce myself. My friends call me Curtis. You know, my, my close friends call me. <laughs> uh, I call that my initial joke. You know, welcome to the Kurt okay. show. I'm, yeah. I'm your like guest host, Kurt. Come on in, get closer. But that's the hardest part right there is that opening introduction, keeping that energy going. People want to leave. They saw a three-minute juggling routine and you caught one behind your back. They're ready to go. They're like, all right, back to the corn dog. Yeah, you got to keep them involved, right? And, and people forget, you always have to start by coming out. Ugh. Like people don't put any thought into how they enter the stage and they forget, I have to start somehow. I got to yeah. I gotta make that, that first move. And, and everything is based on, on momentum. Of course. And once the momentum dies, it's hard to get back. No, I agree that with, when emceeing, when doing a regular show, when doing a show at an old folks home, when doing it at a college, when doing it on a cruise ship, all those things are important. It's just you're playing tai chi with the energy you're getting out you're getting out of the way of the negative energy just kind of brushing that aside you're taking the positive energy and you're throwing that back at the audience over and over again and you have all these tools to do it you have your own original comedy or maybe something you borrowed from someone that you really trust or like you have a bunch of cool props and a cool costume it's also about when to not go too long like if a routine is going past their point of of interest of course and you're kind of wearing them out like shoot if that had stopped a minute ago it was a high point and now it's gone past that uh, and i'm dipping again yeah it's energetically it's just like you have to be aware of yourself you have to create a show that you'd want to watch if that was the number one thing that i would tell anyone is literally just create a show you'd want to watch because you don't want to watch six minutes of a guy trying to climb up on top of a chair unless he's really good at that <laughs> Yeah. Like if he's really good at climbing up a chair, you're like, oh, right. This guy actually made the choice to climb up a chair for six minutes. He's not unaware of time. Right. But a lot of people just don't make choices, number one. And number two, they don't act self-aware. Yeah, they, they can't feel when they're losing them. It's really true. Let's talk about a person you brought up earlier because he also became part of a of your career as a, as a duo. <laughs> you mentioned Tom Wall. Oh, how'd you decide to team up with him and, and what kind of shows did you do and how'd you come up with the name? And tell me a little about that experience working with Tom. Uh, like I said, when I became a solo, I just traveled around as much as I could going to juggling festivals. I met him at St. Louis Juggling Festival. I saw him emceeing a renegade show. I was like, you're really fantastic. Where do you perform? What do you do? He's like, oh, I go to college. I do not perform. I was like, well, cool. Take my email, take my phone number, let me know if you're ever in Portland or if you ever want to know some pointers on how to build a routine because I, I, I like what you did, but there's some things you could do better. Just real simple, just like same level, casual. And then uh, we interacted over the internet, emails, said a few things back and forth. Uh, he asked me if he should do a gig. He's like, oh, there's this gig. It's on a bus. It's with a sideshow. Should I take the gig? I'm like, no, man. I don't I don't think it's a very good gig. I've heard a lot about that, and I would say no. Okay. He took the gig, 
Yeah. The guy ended up having a handgun and a drinking problem. The other guy is like, you know, a human lizard. The other guy is like a weird... Was it like the Jim Rose sideshow? Like kind of like or... one of those yeah. kind of things, you know? Okay. And then they ended up having Tom. He's cutting his teeth as a regular juggler. He's trying to act like right. a wacky guy with poofy hair who juggles knives. And he's okay. trying to be in like a hardcore sideshow where there's like a person that looks like a penguin. And right. people with tattooed faces. And a guy who's like, you know, jabbing needles through his nose and his wiener like r- real <laughs> real hardcore yeah 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 i can't picture tom ball in a, in a hardcore sideshow and so then i think they got a gig in helsinki finland or they got a gig somewhere at some rock festival over there and they looked at tom and they looked at the price <laughs> of a plane ticket and they're like well you know this iga style juggler isn't really our image for our let's go to hell sideshow so we'll let him stay. He, we'll pay for him. We're not paying for his plane ticket. We'll leave him in this tiny town with the bus, and that's our offer. And so, didn't they say if you get some face tattoos, we'll think about it? I, I think that that was maybe one of the <laughs> offers, or maybe if you got a girlfriend who's addicted to some, you know, had daddy issues, then maybe you're thinking about it. But it wasn't. Is that part of the sideshow thing? You have to have a, a uh, you have to have with a daddy issues. With, yeah, you have a lot have a lot of issues and problems because there has to be someone to wake you up at three in the morning. After you just fell asleep after your show. But uh, no. And so he's out there in this place called Vancouver, Washington, watching a sideshow bus so it doesn't get robbed. I think there was a dog involved, maybe. And he's like, yo, I'm stuck in Vancouver, Washington. Do you know where that is? And I'd only had like a maybe like a one year friendship with him at this time. And I was like, yeah, Tom, I know where this is. Uh, It's in my hometown. Would you like me to come and save you? (laughs) Okay. And he's like, sure, man, roll up in the Honda Civic. Let's do this thing. And so I was a solo juggler at the time. I was dating a circus performer at the time. I was in a very small town. And he's like, and I was like, what do you want to do? He's like, obviously, I'm not doing the best at getting gigs or like having quality work. Can you help me develop some acts? And so I helped him develop a hoop act where he jumped through some some rat trap. Yeah, like a diving through the hoops type of thing? Yeah, diving diving through some rat hoops. So he did a rat okay. hoop gig and other things. Yeah, so it's a hoop aligned with rat traps. There you go. Okay. And a few other things like that. And so we just started doing every open mic we could in the small town that I lived in. Like every music open jam, every poetry open jam. Like if it was a library open jam about like, you know, chess, we'd go there and juggle for them. And uh, eventually, like at the end of the month, we probably did like 40 shows. Right. Okay. I was working on some like shaker cupper stuff by myself. He was working on this rat hoop thing. We were doing a little couple little things together. And then at the end of that, we're like, hey, man, we should just do that same thing we just did last month, but we should do it for building a duo act. Because it'd be very fun if we had something that we could do together. We could show it off at juggling festivals. Maybe we could get hired for some larger like money gigs and make it worth our time. And then eventually, uh, we spent a month developing that. He ran off, went home, did his thing, went to circus school, became a master of everything else in the whole wide world, uh, learned 16 languages. And then eventually, after his college, he was like, hey, man, I have this three-month time. Would you like to figure out some time to do our Hopeless Romantics act and take it on a tour from St. Louis to the East Coast? And I was like, hey, man, that sounds awesome. So so we did a couple of development things on the West Coast, like went to Humboldt Juggling Festival, Demento Juggling Festival, Portland Juggling Festival. And then we went and actually did a tour and made money, did some corporate work, did some work for some benefit shows. Uh, We headlined every juggling festival that we went to out there we would MC the whole thing and then also do like a large juggling piece and yeah him and i had like a really great working relationship because we would just make hard choices if we're going to do a juggling duo act together how are we going to do it okay we're going to try to do only acts that haven't been done well what if they're not good that's not the caveat the caveat is <laughs> only acts that haven't been done so we just worked on a bunch of things that hadn't been done and eventually right we had something that we liked it was like about 40 minutes long and uh we could do it wasn't there a wheelchair involved at one point like a, a yeah like a, a, a too high on a wheelchair or something doing too high on a wheelchair is something that we'd never seen anyone else do it was a trick that i developed at a not i mean i co-developed with this person at a barbecue party after the portland juggling festival a person was doing a wheelchair balance 
And I was like, right. hey, man, that looks really stable and interesting. Would it be cool if I went up there? I got up there, and then, you know, a friend handed me three juggling clubs, and we had a trick. And then I got down, and I was like, hey, man, Mark, Mark Seeger, that's fantastic. What a great trick. All right, man, if you ever end up doing that, you can have it. And if I ever end up doing it, I'm going to put it in the act. And he's like, heck, yeah, buddy. High five. <laughs> and it was just two jugglers goofing off at a barbecue party at Reese Thomas's house. And then whenever uh, Tom and I came up, we're like, interesting ideas. What can we do? What can we do? I just had a book of all these ideas I'd been privy to. Right. And that was one of them. And so we did that. We did a five egg juggling bit where he juggled five eggs. And I tried to catch him. Mm, okay. We juggled. Yeah, he juggled three axes on top of the unicycle as I did like a pirouette on two wheels. So like slowly rotating, moving around the thing. One of my favorite bits that we did is that uh, we juggled knives together, but we like had to share them evenly. So Tom got to use the handles and I had to use the blades. Oh, okay. That's interesting. And yeah. so I just used oven mitts and we did mm. takeouts and, 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 and <laughs> okay. juggling and oven mitts. And I take the oven mitt off and I high-fived him and it was really delightful. It's kind of stuff that if you saw someone do it like at an IJ, I, yeah, man, I don't even want to talk about it. These ideas are so great. They're all out there for sure. <laughs> Well, that's the thing about about people putting together routines and stuff is some people don't understand that ideas and generating ideas and having your own ideas because you see a lot of people it's like oh this is this is what it is is I'm going to do this that I've seen and I'm going to do that that I've seen oh I'm going to spin a ring and I'm going to spin a ball on my mouth stick and then I'm going to juggle three different objects I'm going to then eat yeah. an apple you're like bro you couldn't even <laughs> get a lime you couldn't even get a lemon or a tomato. Sure, what sure. about a watermelon? Yeah. Generating new ideas isn't difficult. Yeah. You just have to just choose to do it. Well, it's like this hierarchy of hierarchy of stealing mm -hmm. that um, I've developed and other people have thought about this same idea, you know, Scotty Meltzer, where the worst is seeing something and just doing it mm -hmm. exactly the way you saw it. Of course. And the next is doing it but making some small insignificant change like they use a red ball i use a blue ball no doubt at least go for the third level which is you know bring your own creative changes and jokes and yeah at least two or three things that you're going to do differently with that standard routine or routine that you saw of course man nothing nothing is worse than being one step away from someone in your own breeding ground or your own like sure. developmental pool yeah i mean it happens and then people are racing to get it on video first or something it's really silly there's an abundant amount of ideas. If you end up doing something exactly like someone else, ugh, that's a little bit weird to me. You know, like, hey, who did it first? Where's the thing? Well, all juggling stems from somewhere. I mean, everybody, every, you know, there was a point at one person who did ping pong balls with their mouth thinking, boy, I hope I'm the only person who ever does this. Yeah, of course. And then as we adopted as a standard, do we remember Tom Johnson and he came up with that? Or do we lose him to the annals of time on purpose so we can all use it? That's the thing. But at least we think of the people who then did it. Word. But they did something different with of it. Of course. They, you know, it's like Damon and his piano thing. It's like you could play the same songs or you could just play different songs. Or you could think, hey, how can I juggle and make music? You know, For so you sure. Take the idea behind the routine and, and take that as far as your inspiration as opposed to I see it, do it, repeat it, you know, like a monkey. Of that's the thing that's really hurtful is there is a bunch of common ideas of juggling, whether it's like a Dubai knife is now a razor yeah. sharp thing that we can cut a carrot with. And oh my gosh, look how razor sharp it is. Oh, we cut a carrot with a renegade club. Is this standard? Does everyone do this? Or is it only people from the pier get to do that? Or if you're far enough away from the pier, can you do it? It's really wild, that ownership. To me, I wouldn't even – I really try to just get away from all that so that there's no argument. So you can be yourself. Well, it has to come down to the feeling you have while you perform. Uh -huh. I mean it feels better to come up with a joke oh, or yeah. an idea oh, yeah. and people respond to it. Mm -hmm. Maybe – I don't know because maybe some people, they don't, they don't consider that. Like the feeling they get from a laugh mm -hmm. to them is just they're laughing and I don't care – yeah, if it's, if, if it's my own idea or something I stole. Yeah, I think it feels great to have someone laugh, like for the right reasons on stage, and it feels great to be an MC. I think a lot of people look at those jobs though as very easy to do, and they're like, "Well, if I went on stage, I wouldn't waste people's time. I would be a great MC, and if I went on stage, I'd be awfully funny." But they don't do <laughs> the development. That's a that's a thing that's like rough for me. 
Well, some people think they can wing it. Mm-hmm. Like they go, oh, I'm funny. Mm-hmm. So when I get up there, I'll be funny. Mm-hmm. It's like, well, no, it takes it takes rehearsal and it takes uh, time and dedication to come up with things yeah. once you get up there. Of course. So you can't just be up there and I'm just naturally funny. I once thought that like Reese Thomas was just making up one of his routines on the spot and he had some anecdote about how he lost all of his things and then he just went to Target and bought this act. He's like, oh, I just went to Target and I bought the items through this act or whatever. And then I was convinced for a while that he was just making it up and then he just picked some random items out of the air. And then when I saw him do it for like the 25th time, I was like, wait, am I still convinced that he (laughs) just accidentally did this? (laughs) Well, it's another secret too that you want the audience to feel as if they're watching a spontaneous event. Of course, it needs to be fresh and fun. And that's why some drops and some breaks in character and some really well-written drop lines are really memorable and awesome. Yeah, I accepted the fact that I'm not the greatest juggler in the world, and that's why I'm a comedy juggler. Because isn't it funny when someone makes a mistake? Yeah, I was just watching uh, Rob Torres, mm-hmm. who, who I had the pleasure of working with at Moisture Festival a long time, a couple of festivals along the way. And you realize he might be doing the same trick, like with the shaker cups. Mm-hmm. But it, it's it's so much more than that because like wow why is he getting this that big huge response mm-hmm. with the same trick that I get nothing for of course and it comes down to oh because they're invested in him as a person yeah it's called giving it away or selling it are you selling the trick or are you giving it away yeah and he was definitely selling it and people were buying it that's the thing too you can sell a trick all day and people don't want to buy your silly trick. And, it's, and I usually force it on them. <laughs> You're just like the guy in Vegas with the free, free dirty magazines. Here, take exactly. This, you yeah. this on your yeah, romp cards Schreiner. for the massage girls. Exactly. That's how I am with my sugar cup routine. Hey, take this. Take this. <laughs> Ham-handed. No way. Well, let's talk about like an act and how how you promote it and how you get work because you have some awards. And okay. I know you have a Guinness record. What kind of things can people do to kind of help them promote their act? I think staying involved. I mean, I got that through a community event that I help organize and do some yo-yos at. So I don't own the record, but I'm part of like a bigger group that has it. So I can put that on my publicity. You know, like I have some other ones that I don't even have anymore. I don't even put those on publicity, never have. Just be involved in your community because you're going to get involved in more things that are more interesting. You're going to go to a juggling club. That's great. The International Jugglers Association. That's fantastic. But then pick a third one. Pick a community of poets in your community. Go there a bunch. Learn from them how to be a performer. You know, I learned a lot of how to perform by watching some friends in different art forms that I didn't ever, was never going to do. Like, I watched a bunch of friends do drag performances and, like, drag queens. Watching them perform, I'm like, they don't get to juggle, so how are they entertaining? Well, okay. everyone's clapping. Everyone's excited for them. They're just using their face. They're using their presence. They're using their costume. They're using the music. All right, let's take a few lessons from that, apply it to my stupid juggling show, and now make my juggling show even more uh, able to be digested, able to be understood by making good choices. And yeah. Well, there's a lot of ways to entertain, and sometimes you'll see an act. Mm-hmm. Uh, like I remember watching like Fraser Hooper or someone like that, and they seem to be like taking their time and they're not like, like when I'm up there, I'm like trying to milk every second. Like God forbid I lose their attention for a second. Yeah. And there's other people who can just sort of lay back and the audience follows them like an Abner. Yeah. They're not trying to tap dance every two seconds and yet they're still entertaining. I would wish to be like an Abner, but I feel like I'm more like a tap dancing monkey. I can tell by the sweat in my shoes at the end of my show that I'm more (laughs) like the, the, the second one. Well, you should, you should decide. You should ask yourself, am I more like a tap-dancing monkey mm. or am I more like Avner? Like, which which approach should I should I take? And not try to force yourself into one or the other. For sure. Because neither are wrong. No. Neither are right. Exactly. I mean, I remember as a young performer a few years into it going to an Avner show and I was like, when is this dude going to juggle? What is he doing? <laughs> Everyone loves him so much. Whatever. He opens up for the Smothers Brothers. And then eventually I got it. I was like, oh, okay. I just want to see him to juggle five bats because I'm some kind of gym rat juggler kid. Yeah. I'm like not appreciating this as a performance. And then I watched it again and I was like, oh my gosh, this is so amazing. I need to talk to this guy. Yeah. Then you see people trying to be Avner or do an Avner like performance yeah. and realize, oh, 
No, no, uh, don't no. do that. Don't do well, that. Well, that was one of the most disheartening parts of going to the Avner workshop is that everyone just wanted to be exactly like him. And like I was just trying to be me at an Avner workshop. Which is the best way to approach it. And, and it worked really great. But a lot of people came there with nothing in their cup or less in their cup, you know, or more, more easily influenced. And it was just like, oh, a lot more. Now we have a lot more silent clown pieces. <laughs> <laughs> Which can be great. But yeah. once again, it has to originate from the person and not something that they put on. Of course. On. No, Avner's the best. And I love everything he did. And like, yeah. And it's, a, it's, it's about it came from an original place that he thought about. And when he yeah. when he presents it, he makes you pay attention to his thoughts. Well, it's like magicians; they can sell their routines, mm -hmm. and someone else could do someone's routine word for word. Oh man! And yet, it it lacks the charm and and the 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 effectiveness of the original presenter. Of course, I've been blessed to be watching a lot of magic in the last few years. It's pretty wild to see how yeah. hard they work, and then try to apply even like half of that amount of energy to a juggling routine. I dare people to do that. Yeah, I've been watching a lot of Sylvester the Jester recently. Nice. And the Great Kaplan. Okay, the Great Kaplan you is think, fantastic. Fantastic. And you think about the effort and the setup mm -hmm. and just the, the amount of thought. material and equipment and thought. Mm -hmm. And yeah, when did you see a juggler who's got suitcase three a diablo three balls and and does torches on the unicycle oh yeah which can be very effective of course but they think that they could play a stage with imagine dragon with that right that's not the <laughs> truth because imagine dragon has 16 18 wheelers you know it's like... i've always thought though that a juggler could be a great addition you know especially one that's heavy in the flow where they'll spend like you know they're spending three thousand dollars a night for that one particular lighting effect uh -huh, uh -huh. what about a juggler who could do you know all these different illuminated things and hmm. like a human effect that could sort of tour with an imagined dragons or something i mean we all know the truth is that it's not about what you know it's about who you know so if you knew right. imagine dragons and then you <laughs> right, right. also happen to be the guy that had an illuminated juggling set like jeremiah johnson or other people like that i think yeah. that that crossover really could happen but it takes imagine dragons making the choice it's not the juggler making the choice almost of course yeah and it's like at the end of the day imagine dragons always wanted to have a spectacle so as the juggler you probably would almost feel like a plug and play thing like are you going to do conic with them are you going to do like giant illuminated ribbons like would it be better to just teach like 15 youth how to juggle light up clubs or would it be better to be yeah i don't know that answer to that but I think it's well, you say, you know. at a certain point you'd be like a human special effect mm -hmm. and be like, well, I think if you if that if that works for you. But I think a lot of us and I think for you especially, of course. you know, your personality and expressing what you want to express is more important than, you know, just being a cog in a machine somewhere. A thousand percent. And like when you do something where you maybe feel like more anonymous, where you're going to just do a bunch of shows at a in a concert or, you know, at a venue where you're not getting all that attention. It's great because then you can think about your other material and you can find a paycheck to practice right. juggling. Like if someone's going to pay you to be in a Christmas spectacle and they're going to do 70 shows and it's going to be in like North Carolina, go do those 70 shows, man. Like if, if stage fright's your issue, if not having a consistent work is your issue, heck yeah, go do those gigs. But while you're there in the hotel, practice your comedy juggling, write some bits or like well, it's like a Cirque du Soleil experience. Of course. Like, okay, here's your seven minutes. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Now we don't want you to change that mm -hmm. seven minutes. Don't don't adapt it. Mm -hmm. Don't 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 mess with no. it. That's what we want mm -hmm. in every show. Mm -hmm. And every show we want it to be exactly the same. For sure. And I think for my brain that wouldn't work so much because I have a very improvisational plus like people call them routines. I try to call them unroutines because I don't want it to feel mm -hmm. routine. Okay. Right? It's like I have a thing that I want to do. Like I want to go through this tennis racket while juggling these things and have this person help me. And I definitely want to put a skirt on them. And I definitely want to make some tennis puns. Right. But if anything else happens during it, like I've stopped in the middle of that routine, had the person go sit down and then done my whole club routine and then have them come back and then finish it. And that seemed right for that moment. And then other moments I have people rush me through that bit. Well, you've always had an original take on things. I think to me, you seem like a guy who's not invested as much in I don't want to say success. Oh, thank you, know, thank you very much. I appreciate that. No, exactly. No, you know what I mean? That it's more about the experience and about the, 
spontaneity and sort of the the feel of it. I was really blessed to come from like a hardworking background. So ever since I was 13, I had a side job. So I've always had a little bit of right. a little bit of money. So I could make a more challenging choice. Like, okay, I know for the next three months, I'm only going to work 18 days. Am I able to do that? But sometimes I worked 214 days in a row. Right. It's like, that's pretty wild to think that. That's fun. That's crazy, you know? And those days were not like $100 a day. Those were really some great times, you know? And it, sure. and it adds up. But no, I agree. I, success is not the thing I'm going for. I'm not going for like putting out the best Instagram. I'm not going for telling everyone how great my experience is. I'm going for like a career of impactful and interesting and fun, surprising entertainment. And you've also sort of progressed with your image and your look over the years in a way a lot of people would think is sort of like a anti-show busy direction. There you go. I think I've always been told that I'm anti-show busy and I kind of <laughs> not really, I mean, I'm not, I don't, I don't hate that, but as a character, a lot of people would pay a lot of money for the facial hair and the stuff that I have. It's an expensive right. prop. I mean, if you were going to do Pirates of the Caribbean and you wanted to make someone this wig, it would cost them thousand bucks. Yeah, because you've gone from the clean cut guy, then you then you started with the mustache, then you had kind of an elaborate mustache. There you are, and now you've gone for the full the full facial beard and full Wookie. The whole Wookie, the Wookie look. I think that I'm just going for the natural, just showing people that yeah, you don't have to. I don't put on a bunch of makeup when I go on the stage. I don't. Yeah. You know, I wear a lot of vintage clothing and things that I may have found very inexpensively. I do behold to like the show business standards of look your audience in the eyes, do your homework, yeah. treat people like this is the best night of their life. Cause it might be, they might pass away in a week, man. Life is a serious business and we don't all get out alive. Well, you're, you're authentic. Like you're not the guy with the sparkly vest and the, the making sure I'm freshly shaven and yeah. you know, the, like I'm everybody's favorite grandson or something. There's different, yeah, there's different kinds of that. You know, I think that me just trying to be authentic tries to allow the audience to have an authentic experience of what they're doing and watching. And then next comes the facial tattoos. I don't think that that'll ever happen. I have zero <laughs> tattoos, but um, maybe, maybe I think the next happens is all my hair falls out and I become normal and more, an, you know, anonymous. Who knows? Well, let's hope that so. I don't. I don't see that. Yeah. You seem to have a good, uh, good, good healthy head of hair, and you have a good, healthy sense of like community, like you said, because you've also won some awards for your community. Because you've gotten the Ben Linder Award. Like that's not a, that's more of a community involvement award. It's about yeah. I mean that that's about giving back and how much you've been around the scene. Some people win it for just fabulous performance. They show up like, I know that Victor Key won it just for being an amazing juggler and. Right. But then you think you look back and oh, Victor Key's not just an amazing juggler. He's contributed. He's done these things. He came and he taught a workshop. And you're like, yeah, the right person was given that award. Okay, cool. And then the next year, it's like someone who's just from the juggling club. They're like, oh wow, fascinating. This award is given to people who are actually giving back to the community, and it's in honor of a person who gave back to, and lost their life for juggling and clowning. So it's pretty wild. And you also got the Judy Finelli Award for most inspirational type of. Yeah, down at juggling at the humble juggling festival one of the places that i first started out i never thought i would you know win a people's choice award or like win a but yeah i was able to perform at the humble juggling festival like 15 times maybe with all kinds of different acts from vanilla town to the paper circus the hopeless romantics and you know myself yeah, yeah. i can say it's just a commitment to the community a commitment to a festival a commitment to you know your you're just where you live, your neighborhood. I know you uh, didn't want to talk about it, but you also will go out and clean up around your neighborhood just as a, a good civic thing that you're going to do. It's true. I had a friend who was like, well, how do I become a juggler? And I was like, let's go out and make a video. And I just took him out and we juggled and we hung out and we picked up trash and we did that for a whole summer just because I was like, he's like, how's this going to make me a juggler? I'm like, well, people will see you on this video. They'll They'll know who you are. They'll know you're a nice person. And if you want to juggle for them, that's probably an easy conversation you can have because the best people make the best entertainers. So go out there and be a good person. Well, that's, that's a good thought. Hey, we've come to the end. So let's talk a little bit about uh, what's the future hold for Kurt? What do you got coming up and any type of public performances? And are you also on Patreon? Can people see you and like on your website? And how can they support what you do? Well, if you go online and look up Curtis Carlisle on Google, you can find all kinds of ways to see me, uh, whether it's videos on YouTube, Instagram, Facebook. I'm going to be doing some shows in Portland on the 18th and 19th at Jaja PDX. That's pretty soon. So I don't know if this will be out by then. 
but uh, mid, mid, middle mid of August yeah. should be out. So maybe maybe by then. Regard, I'm always doing things, collaborating with people. I'm in a touring magic show. I'm part of a seasonal rock band. Like it has a summer touring schedule, so I go out with them and go to festivals. Um, I'm hoping to go to the next IJA next year and uh, yeah, contribute more to this amazing group of people who's given me so much of a, a window into having fun. Great. And I hope you had fun being on the Drop Everything podcast. Of course, Dan. You're fantastic. Thanks for having me. <laughs> and thanks for being one of the community members that are so, so supportive of all this juggling and comedy and silliness. Well, thank you. A big hand to everybody who's out there listening. You can't hear it, but he'll know he'll feel it for Curtis Carlisle. Thanks, Kurt. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed Drop Everything podcast number 119, my conversation with Kurt Carlisle. Thanks, Kurt. Good luck on your upcoming shows, and you can find out about them by visiting his website. Let's thank our sponsor, the IJA. Hope everyone had a great time at this year's IJA Festival, and hope to see you next year. You can find out about their festival, merchandise, and more at juggle.org. Interested in sponsoring a future podcast? Contact me at danjuggle at gmail.com. All right, now go out there into the world and drop everything, except when you're juggling.